You have one unheard message. Hi, uh, Kimberly. It's Tom Panneries. I, I know that you've been trying to get in touch with me for your show, and I know my publicist has been very standoffish. I'm not going to apologize for that. I mean, that's Nancy's job. But um, I'm going to go behind her at my back, and, and this is not going to make her feel any good, and she's not going to be happy about it. But uh, after listening to your, uh, your your premiere episode of your show, I do feel like I need I, I do need to set the record straight. So, so I thought I'd call you. Um, this is going to be a little long, so feel free to cut out whatever you want. Um, anyway, so I've been racking my brain as to why there's this 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 myth about me. I mean, I hate to say this, but you know, Shag was sort of right uh, with connecting this to Little Caesars, uh, the pizza chain, because he got but he got the story backwards. Uh, back in my tenth grade chemistry class, I think it was like ninety two. 93? I'm not... Yeah, it was like 92, 93. Anyway, um, I don't know exactly how it started, but my friend Jim came up with this nickname because these commercials were airing for Little Caesars um, and you get like a pan pizza deal or something and you had a Little Caesar guy going, pan, pan, you know, because he used to go pizza, pizza, but he was saying pan, pan. So that's where it came from. And, well, my name's Paris and I'm Italian and all that stock. So for a really long time, like, I mean, people I went to high school with, like, still call me that. And, um... And it actually dogged me for a while because there was this girl named Danielle who was a really good friend and I had this thing for her, and but we never really got out of the friend zone because she never really thought me of anything but Pan Pan, and, uh, but you know, look, you don't want to hear about shipping. So um, I will, uh, I'll get to the urban legend, this myth thing, you know, all these people. I mean, I, I never realized, I don't see where I realized how widespread and how exaggerated this had become. I, you know, I, I, I kept tabs on it, but, but wow, I mean, that's some serious investigative reporting. But anyway, I think it started with this fight. I've been in, I was in one fight, um, one fight in school, my entire, my entire years of, of junior high and high school and uh, back up, back, back in Sable. And uh, this is when I was a teenager. I was this huge nerd honors student, you know, this uh, straight A's. I was on the mock trial team, president of the community service club, editor of the newspaper, like really, really nerdy. And they had this guy, this brand new guy uh, to school, and uh, they wanted me to give him a tour. So, uh, so I, you know, I went to meet him. And from the minute we met, though, like I was completely, I was a marked man. Um, I, I, I walked up to him. I introduced myself. You know, hey, my name is Tom Pannery. It's nice to meet you. I've been asked to show you around. And and I put my hand in his arm, like in a friendly gesture. And he just like gave me this look and said, "You're dead, basically." And. Uh, Three o'clock after school on a parking lot. We're gonna we're gonna fight, and uh, and I immediately you know walked away slowly, and then ran to the bathroom because, well, I needed to go, and um, and then I just basically did like everything in my power to avoid it. I mean, you know, like I would have robbed a store and paid somebody off to beat this guy up for me if I had the means to do commit grand larceny, which I think is two hundred and fifty dollars. I'm not sure. Maybe it was back then. Anyway. Um, so three o'clock comes around, and by that point, like, I mean, there's a small crowd gathered. It's not everyone at the school, um, but but it's a small crowd, and uh, everybody knew it was going to happen. So, and I'm pretty sure bets were being placed, and um, I've never seen any of that money. The point, the fight. Okay, so I had to do it. You know, I had to face this, face this mountain of a sophomore, but uh, he gotten left back twice, so he was you know older, and. Um, I had to do it by myself. I mean, this was like, you know, man up, stop being a, a drama queen, um, stop being, you know, like a little little baby and, and, and face, your, face your antagonist here. So I went and thinking, okay, all 
fights really don't last very long. I mean, they last long in the movies, but they don't really last them very long on, uh, in, in real life. And, you know, in years down, years down the road, nobody really remembers them that well. Like, you know, like when you when you read about Hemingway and those guys, no one ever talks about who won, just that they got in a brawl, you know. So, so, I, so I figured that was what was happening. You know, taking a few punches, it'd be broken up because somebody would show up or whatever. And, and so I, I met him, and I made the first move. And then I, he started tossing me around, and he punched me a couple of times. I bloody lip and my friend tried to help but he got knocked out and uh, but it helped me because it gave me this opening that I needed and I managed to just land one punch one punch and connected uh, connect, connected his jaw and he went down and, and I lived um, but a week later there's all these people who who weren't there saying that they were and saying that like it made it seem like like the entire school was like filled with the rafters around the parking lot. Like everybody was there, like all one thousand people who went to the school, and and um, and like that the, the guy was like using brass knuckles on me, and, and and I used them on him or something. And and this is what ninety three, you know. So it kind of spread like rumor, and then years later, the internet got a hold of it, and it might have started in a like a Usenet or Altnet or CompuServe, maybe it was CompuServe or something board. Um, and uh, there's a Reddit thread out there that collects all of this. I don't know if you're aware of that. I, I don't know if that's come up in your research or if that was the case for a, a future episode of your show. Anyway, the net gets its hooks in it, and it's almost like became a creative writing project. Like, how much can you add to this legend? And and it was like William Wallace in Braveheart. You know, like all of a sudden I'm shooting lightning bolts from my from my eyes and, and, and striking people down and toppling governments and things like that. And, uh, well, I kind of let it go. I, I kind of let it go for a couple of reasons. A, you know, I do get a bit of a kick out of it. You know, I have a massive ego and that ego is often easily bruised, but when I can feed that ego, I will, I will do it. And two, um, it's oddly a nice cover for what I actually do for a living in my life. And I can't tell you what that is because then I'd have to kill you. But yeah, so that's the story. That's the story behind Pam Pan. It's, it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's very exciting, but I thought I'd, I, I, you know, set the record straight. Um, I also noticed that you now know why I valued living beyond my son's tenth birthday, and therefore didn't name him Bruce. So there's that. Um, and I hope, I hope this doesn't ruin your podcast because uh, this feels anticlimactic to me. Um, like, like I should have some sort of origin story involving, um, I don't know, uh, an exploding planet or a. Or a, or a Canadian experiment and they kidnapped me when I was a student at Degrassi or something and shoved me into a Weapon X program or something. I don't know. But, um, but, but hey, I mean, um, at least I'm talking to you and not Sarah Koenig because she's been on, on my nerves lately and, and trying to get in touch with me because she's been doing this. But, you know, um, Serial doesn't need a third season. Uh, and uh, so you've got this going for you, which is nice. Um, I apologize for the really long voicemail. Uh, I'm in a location that I, I can't I can't tell you where I am. I'm with these kids. One of them's whining about her father and getting too angry and bringing him out. And um, I'm sure that everybody would find that like the most boring thing about this story. But I hope you can use this somehow. I'll tell my publicist, Nancy, I'll tell her to take your calls from now on in case you need a follow-up. Uh, uh, bye. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. 
holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. She's watching the taxi driver, he pulls away. She's mad. Locked up inside her apartment a hundred days. She says, Yeah, you're still coming just a little bit late. He got stuck at the laundromat washing his cape. She's just watching the clowns roll by and they spell her name like Lois Lane. And she smiles on the way she smiles. She's talking to I'm your host, Stella, and this is Back with the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 139 for May MMXVII. Back with the Oracle is brought to you by First Strike Invasion. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! November 4th, 1988, Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kuns, the Tanagarians, and the Durlins, and they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United Nations response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover. Issue by issue, tie-in by tie-in. Join Bass and Siskoid at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on iTunes. First Strike, the Invasion Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Remember, Melbourne. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backworld Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to thebatmanuniverse.net. Well, 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 it has been a brief respite. 
You've heard my voice pretty recently, and here we are. One of the reasons why I want to get this out sooner rather than later is that my best friend is getting married in mid-May, and so I wanted uh, there to be less less stress surrounding that because I am, in fact, the maid of honor. So there are a lot of duties that I must undertake. Uh, And of course, I want to be the best maid of honor as possible, but I didn't want to skip a month, obviously. I had a lot of fun. I went over spring break to New York City. I always try to go once every year. And this one was a special time because I treated my sister-in-law to a show. And I think she really hadn't been to the city uh, for more than four hours, which I, you know, how can you even just have four hours in New York City? But we saw a wonderful musical called Dear Evan Hansen. And I really implore you guys to look up what this musical is about. Wonderful music, a great storyline, and something that I think is very relevant today, uh, not only with technology, but I think with what young adults are consistently going through, just sort of being on the outside sometimes of, of social circles and being excluded and the idea of a lie and and how lies can be pretty damaging and also get you into more trouble as they grow and get larger. Uh, So yeah, I definitely recommend checking that out. Let me know what you think uh, if you are Broadway fans. I hope to go back because I really want to see Anastasia, the Broadway musical. I, uh, I'm i not too much of a girly girl, so, you know, I don't think I would go and see Beauty and the Beast, for even though I love Beauty and the Beast, but I don't think I would see that or Cinderella on Broadway. But Anastasia is just a favorite movie of mine, and I, I had the soundtrack when I was young and, and growing up from that animated film, and so just to think about a journey to the past, seeing that live and in production would be amazing. So I'm really hoping that I get to go and see that. And of course, Hamilton's, you know, kind of on the bucket list. I only recently started uh, actually listening to it. Um, It's so weird how Hamilton has become almost the new Wicked, I think, because I remember when Wicked was really hard to get tickets to, and now Hamilton, it's very improbable you'll get tickets. But on paper, my goodness, how ridiculous an idea Hamilton seems. Just sort of this hip-hop or uh, rock opera about... (laughs) you know, politics and, and this one leading politician. Uh, it just seems ridiculous, and but yet it is actually really quite amazing and, and good. So maybe one day I'll see it. But uh, until then, you know, I won't hold my breath and I'll see other shows that I want to see. Well, the disappointing thing about this particular episode is that I think it might be the start of something that happens quite frequently and... If you're a fan of uh, anime, I think you'll know what this is. If you've seen sitcom shows, and one that comes most readily into my mind is Friends. There are recap episodes, right? And the Friends ones were they sort of mixed up different vignettes uh, that put together and they were sort of all in a theme sometimes they would have new things that would uh, bring them together but really it was just a recap episode anime usually they have a recap episode maybe halfway or so and there's usually a voiceover so it makes it seem like it's a new episode but it's really just obnoxious because it catches people up and you're like "Ooh, i want a new episode other people it might be good for so this is going to be a bit of a recap episode uh at least in the first half and i think like i said it might happen more frequently because Barbara Gordon is going to start appearing very frequently throughout the different Bat books. And I need to decide, I think, and and just use my discretion and wisdom 
how best to cover her uh, because looking at that list, seeing how often she pops up, that's that would be insane for me to dedicate that amount. And while this podcast, you know, one of its, you know, in its manifesto is to cover her and see how she has grown, seeing her have some speech lines or, you know, computer interactions is not necessarily going to have any sort of impact on her character. So I am going to cover, I obviously want to focus on really big moments in her character history and her interactions with the Bat family. But if she's only appearing in one or two panels and, you know, I think about it and perhaps not much would change if she wasn't there, then I'm just going to talk about the story, uh, how she appeared, what the impact was or any significance and then move on and save that time for actual reviews for main titles that she's in. Uh, And I say main as in like titles that we focus on her in particular, especially Birds of Prey when we get to it, you know, back roll with Cassandra Kane. I think Nightwing, she's going to be popping up more seriously. Of course, when we start to get to bigger storylines, again, it seems like it's been a little while. Uh, I think the next one I'm going to get to is going to be Cataclysm. Then I'll cover that as a whole. But until then, I'm just going to hop around. So like I said, this is going to be a bit of a recap episode. I cover about uh, three different issues. I'll tell you what happened in those particular issues, how Barbara Gordon appeared, what her impact and her significance was. So I apologize for this. This is probably going to happen a, a little bit here and there. I, I'll try not to do a bam, bam, but like, you know, subsequent episodes, hopefully It'll be recap and then, you know, two significant episodes and then maybe a recap. I'll try not to. I'll space it out. But this is, you know, otherwise I'm going to be doing this for a very long time. And uh, at some point, you know, it might end. So what, whatever way, you know, is I can best uh, represent the character, I think, and, and get to know her is, is what I'm going to do. There is one particular issue that I am going to go over a little bit more, at least read you couple sections of it and it was Batman Secret Files which came out in October 97 and is described as having these particular segments with them Man Behind the Bat Alfred Pennyworth Speaks an all new origin story The Waynes the first family of Gotham City Who is Batman an exclusive psychological profile plus inside info on Batman's allies and going underground a guided tour It had several writers throughout, Devin Grayson for The Secret Origin, Chuck Dixon for Who is Batman, The Guided Tour is written and penciled by Graham Nolan, the interview of Alfred Pennyworth is written by Doug Mensch, Uh, the article The Men Behind Gotham is written by Scott Beatty, Chuck Dixon again for The Lost Pages, How Batman Gets His Equipment, Scott Beatty again for The Timeline of Batman, and Kelly Puckett writes uh, from the desk of Mr. Dennis O. Goodwin. And then we have the profile pages, which is what I want to focus on here. Because it's 97, of course, we've had the Birds of Prey out for a little while. And luckily for us, they get their own special page. So Birds of Prey, and we just have Oracle and Black Canary. Uh, so we talk Oracle, real name Barbara Gordon, occupation information broker, library administrator, Gotham City Public Library, base of operations Gotham City, marital status single, height 5'11", weight 126, eyes blue, hair red, first appearance as Batgirl was Detective Comics 359. Kind of strange they don't say with her first appearance as 
Oracle was, but there we go. Then Black Canary, we have real name Donna Laurel Lance, occupation crime fighter and freelance operative, base of operations international, marital status single. I'm sure she's upset about that. Height 5'4", weight, she's coming in, uh, so she's shorter than uh, Barbara, and she's coming in 11 pounds lighter at 115 her eyes are blue gray hair blonde but naturally black could have just said a blonde wig you know first appearance justice league of america number 75 november 1969 kind of wonder which incarnation of that that must have been that could have been her mother ryan daly would certainly be the one to ask about that but i just wonder which black canary actually appears in that justice league of america number 75 Here is what actually is said about the Birds of Prey. As Batgirl, Barbara Gordon often joined the nightly crusade of Batman and Robin, a fact not unknown to her adoptive father, Commissioner James W. Gordon. When the Joker ended her crime-fighting career with a crippling bullet, rather than giving in to depression and despair, Barbara chose a new identity and raison d'etre recreating herself as the all-seen oracle with funding from Wayne Corps and the Justice League. In addition to ill-gotten funds, she has shifted out of criminal accounts. Barbara has built an unsurpassed network of information spanning the internet and globe, aiding the Batman and his allies in their adventures with lightning-fast relaying of valuable knowledge and resources. Oracle has also defined her own zero tolerance for crime, employing Dinah Lance, the Black Canary, as one of several field operatives in order to wage her own crusade against corruption. For the second generation superhero Black Canary, Oracle has provided new meaning to a life once spent in the shadow of heroes like the late Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, her former lover. For Oracle, it is a means to escape her own paralysis and continue to make a difference even without the costume. I think that's certainly well written. The image here, you have Barbara who is uh, in a sports bra and it's I mean she basically well the whole thing is taking place in a gym so I can certainly see it so you can sort of see that she's very much still active even though she is in a wheelchair and then in the foreground you have Black Canary with a a punch there so great job and it's funny because the next page over you have the urban enforcer aka Helena (laughs) so it's just interesting that even though they're not formally together yet that they are sharing a uh, full page spread to a certain extent uh so there you go they they of course have other people like asriel and robin as you would expect and the commissioner gordon and things like that and the different officers of the gcpd so that is batman secret files in october 97 so then we get to these three issues that i'm just going to hop on and hop off Two of the three are actually Nightwing. Isn't that fun? The first one is Nightwing one half, The Breaks, and this was, or the cover date rather, was October 97. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Scott McDaniel, anchor Carl Story, and colorist Roberta Tews. Lunchmeat Deaver is being escorted by the marshals to a safe location because he is going to share what he knows about Blockbuster with the federal prosecutors. Blockbuster sends out a hit, and Nightwing goes to lend a hand to the marshals and ends up getting in the crossfire, but he saves Deaver nonetheless, and he then returns him to the feds. So at one point we see that Nightwing loses Deaver uh, because the marshals have three different vans uh, and they use two as decoys and he asks Babs for help, uh, who at that time is watching His Girl Friday, the movie with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. And once Dick makes it clear it isn't a social call, Babs tells him to call her Oracle, which I thought was very interesting. Later, Oracle finds the information he needs and pops up on screen as Dick is changing, and he asks how long she had been watching, but she only reveals at the very end that she saw his speedo, which I thought was very cute. So two things that 
we sort of learn about Oracle here is that I think there is a very definitive divide between her personal life and her superheroing life. Um, I think sometimes there is a blend between the two of them, depending on what hero we're talking about. But I find it very interesting that Dick calling Babs could be a social call, but then right away when she knew it was work, it was like, you need to call me Oracle. And so I think it's it's very interesting that it makes it, I think, less personal, obviously, but it also so shows, I think, that there is very much a, a business and professional side of Barbara, and uh, she doesn't want that, that sort of thing to mix. And, and I think you can tell also just how serious she is if she goes into that mode. And I think it's pretty funny, just the the shipping right there that he's changing. And uh, she makes a comment in the beginning. He's like, how long are you watching? And she pretended that it wasn't very long at all. And then she's like, you better go change all that Speedo. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, so a fun little issue there, Nightwing one half. We then go to Nightwing number 14, which is called Dead Meat. And there's a bit of a connection here with one half the... Cover date was November 97. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Scott McDaniel, inker Carl Story, colorist Roberta Tews, and Jameson Services. Nightwing and Batman were overwhelmed by the thugs of Timothy Lunchmeat Deaver. I should say that Batman has come to Bluehaven uh, for a short time. There's some tension there, but this is continuing off of another issue. So these two are about to be eaten by some huge pigs, so they are in a bit of trouble. Nightwing wants to buy themselves time by mentioning that only him and Batman know the whereabouts of Deaver's son, Frankie. Deaver wants to pull Nightwing out of the pigsty. Batman emits a massive electric shock at that time through his utility belt in order to free himself and his partner. Deaver gives his men the orders not to kill them before he knows where his son is, but then he suddenly gets called by Frankie on his cell phone. So obviously Frankie has escaped, but so have Nightwing and Batman. Returning to the Batmobile, Nightwing needs to get off his chest that he doesn't really appreciate Batman interfering in what he calls his own personal crusade, and that Blue Haven already feels more like a home to Dick than Gotham. And this surprises Batman, and he leaves stoically, of course. Meanwhile, Blockbuster hires both Lady Vic and a man called Stallion to kill Nightwing, and if necessary, the Batman as well. After a short chat with Oracle, Dick tries to call Bruce, but it's Alfred that answers the phone. Dick tells his friend what happened between Bruce and him, and that he wants to apologize for some of the things he said. Then Dick gets to work in Hogan's Alley, he's a bartender at this point, and is surprised to see that one of the guests there is Matches Malone, and so that's where we are here. So, yeah, it was a little hard, and it was harsh also, just with Dick saying basically get out of my town and this feels more like home than Gotham I mean whoo that's pretty hurtful but uh, when he calls Oracle Oracle helps connect Deaver to Blockbuster under the regal laws and brings it into federal jurisdiction so basically this would help Dick nail Deaver if he needs to as well as Blockbuster but she notices that Dick isn't as excited to hear that and asks what's up and he says another time so I, I think we get to see here just not only, I think, how Dick, again, is relying on Oracle to a certain extent, but how well Barbara knows Dick personally and can tell that there's something wrong. And also, you can tell here just that Dick feels bad about the whole thing with Batman. You kind of wish that he would have talked to her about it, but I think his mind is on that professional side as well, and he wants to get done with the mission, and at another time, he'll he'll talk to her about it or clear it up or just go to Batman and Bruce. So I think for both of these Nightwing issues, you're really starting to see the personal and professional 
relationship between Dick and Babs, and I'm sure we'll start to see that blend more and more as we continue in this Nightwing, especially. Uh, and I know when we get to the hunt for Oracle, we'll see that as well as No Man's Land. So there's lots of stuff coming down the pike for sure. My final issue is Azrael number 35, and it's called The Angel and the Hitman, and this cover date was also November 97. Writer Denny O'Neill, penciler Roger Robinson, inker Jim Pasco, colorist Demetrius Basukos. Attempting to aid his sick friend Willie Ronton, Azrael tries to locate Willie's father, Samuel. Unfortunately, Samuel also happens to be the target of the metahuman mobster Yancey Thork. Just before he himself was shot by Tommy Monaghan, the hitman, Yancey made him swear to find Ronton to settle some scores. As both Azrael and Hitman draw closer to the target, the two team up to fend off some unsavory types. Discovering that Ronton is innocent of Thork's accusations, Tommy knocks off the true perpetrator, and Azrael brings Samuel back to his son. I feel like, but I could be wrong, this is the same kid that Azrael saved during Genesis 34, the one that walked off. Uh, but again, I could be very wrong. But here we see Azrael calling Oracle for help and tracking down Willie's father, Samuel Ronton. And she gets him the information and also asks when Azrael is going to come and see her. She can make him some chamomile tea if he likes that. There was no response, but she had a flirty look about her. It's hard for me to describe, but just like her smile, her eyes is like oh okay and it's interesting because you know a couple episodes ago i think it was ian miller who said that he heard that there was some sort of flirty relationship or shipping between Azriel and barbara and i said oh i haven't seen that yet but i haven't been reading enough and then sure enough the next issue that i read that she pops up in more significantly here we go uh so it is very interesting because she's kept it pretty professional you know, otherwise, uh, both in this book as well as outside this book, and then all of a sudden she's saying, come and see me, and uh, yikes. Well, <laughs> that implies a lot there, so I, I think I'm not really sure uh, where this will go from here and how it will end and how it... If she had a pick between the two, would she go with Azrael or Nightwing? I think Nightwing all the way, but it's just interesting that she's being flirtatious, uh, especially since she knows, or I would hope anyways, that she knows or knew, yeah, that she knows what went down with Nightfall and everything. But he has proven himself, and I think certainly people can change, and I think he has. But, <laughs> oh man, it just seems interesting to... She she hasn't invited anybody else over that she's been in contact with, but I guess she does have a pretty good, maybe a friendship with him, because if they're in constant contact, then um, I guess it's one of those, like, we only have a phone relationship, so maybe it's time we meet sort of thing. I don't know. Uh, so those are basically all of my recaps that I have for you, uh, and then Secret Files, and that's really how it's going to go, folks. So I do apologize for it, but it's kind of a, a nice middle way to not do full reviews because I think it's unnecessary, but also not neglect them. So this is sort of meeting you guys halfway. Next up is listener emails. Mail Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So I had quite a bit from the actual website. The first of these coming from episode 135, which was my Iron Fist discussion special with Gerard and Jason. 
first from Ian Prime. He says, but Ward and Joy and Colleen are dreamier, even though I said that Danny Rand is my, my dreamy guy. Then he also says, I think part of the problem with the corporate plot line, good lord, alliteration, is that Danny is so reactive and Joy and Ward and Harold are so are so active in planning that they are more interesting to write and watch for general watchers like myself, who didn't read any of the Iron Fist comics. This was pointed out well in the podcast by your guests. Still, I am shocked at you. There are six books in the Earthsea series, not three or four. I have a literature recommendation for you. Tales of Earthsea and the Other Wind. Excellent reads. So, I couldn't remember. This happened, I read these in like 2000... Uh, it wasn't last year. Probably 14, maybe. I've read all of them. So <laughs> I appreciate your literature recommendation. I appreciate your literature recommendation, but I have read all of them. I just miscounted and couldn't remember. But there there were a lot. I remember this. As my initial comment obviously shows, I thought Ward and Joy were the most interesting characters, though I also enjoyed Colleen. Though no one pointed out that Jessica Henwick played an X-Wing pilot in Star Wars The Force Awakens, a new cash grab. Smiley face emoticon. I think the relationship between Joy and Ward had the most emotional stakes, tension, and occasional payoff, so I found them most satisfying to watch. I definitely think that Joy is massively underwritten, so that her final scene doesn't really make sense because we don't really know why she does a lot of what she does. I think Joy is more naive than Ward, but she's still very much a corporate shark with her black market organ donation deals. Yeah. I personally would prefer a Heroes for Hire combination series than Luke Cage and Iron Fist Season 2, though to be fair, I didn't watch more than one episode of Luke Cage. Madame Gao is hilariously awesomely evil. I really liked her role in this, perfect mustache twirling. Funny story, when my friend and I watched Daredevil Season 1 two years ago, we joked very early in the season that she's from Kung Fu Guard, like one of the seven realms of Asgard, Midgard, etc. Then, when at the end of the season she says she's from farther away than China, we literally yelled at the scene, <laughs> we were joking about Kung Fu Guard, and now I insist that Kunlun is Kung Fu Guard. A friend on Twitter has said the show should have had the first episode in Kunlun. Maybe that was impossible because of budget, but I say it would have really fixed a lot of the problems in the show. I really appreciated your take on the show. I think I'm similar in my ranking and reaction to it, though I think it struggles a lot with the writing of the characters and not having enough story. There's a lot of unnecessarily repeated flashbacks. All in all, though, it provides something different and fun to the Netflix narrative tapestry. I will say that I looked up after I saw this comment, I looked up Jessica Henwick in the um, <laughs> in Star Wars and like I would not have been able to tell even after this. I mean, it doesn't look like her. Her face is all smushed by her her helmet. <laughs> but <laughs> I do appreciate that. And you certainly get some respect bucks from me. You know, I've been thinking about this each more afterwards. I, I sort of stop. I don't know. It's not every day, but I contemplate Iron Fist sometimes. And now that I've been farther away from it, I enjoy it even more. And, and I do want to do a, a watch through again. I completely agree with you. I think the biggest mistake was not having just a fully Kunlun-centric episode. I think that would have been the way to go. And it would have just given good background. And then those anecdotes that he had throughout the season would have made more 
more sense when he was talking about him and his friend and the crazy stuff that they did. But I really enjoyed this show, and, and I look forward to whatever is going to happen. The only bummer about, you know, if you do do Heroes of Hire is that now we've got two people, right? You can't necessarily focus on one. Yeah, I hope Defenders, you at least see the chemistry between him and Luke and then go from there and see what happens. But I'll just miss having a solo Iron Fist show, I think. Um, But yeah. Now on to episode 137. Also from Ian Prime, he says, Shag is, as always, a delight. Cough, cough. To mock, winky emoji. But in all seriousness, I quite enjoy Shag episode. The banter and sarcasm take a sharp turn <laughs> turn up whenever he shows up. And I have to agree, Huntress is quite attractive in Birds of Prey. I also agree completely that between Dixon and Simone, Birds of Prey got really weak. There are rumors that DC wanted to pull a new 52 and make Babs back row again. And the stories during that period do seem to flirt with some of those ideas. But they were terrible. Not unlike how the stories when Babs came back in the New 52 were also terrible. Winky emotica. There are indeed a few pictures of Cass's Batgirl in the Batgirl coloring book, including one... What? I was wrong? Uh-oh. Including one with Stephanie as spoiler. I just didn't mention them because, though Cass is great, my favorite Batgirl is always the Violet Avenger or the Purple Urbex Hobbyist. I guess I missed it in my flipping through. Huh. I'm going to have to sit down and study it more carefully. It's funny you mentioned the Beast Boy miniseries. I just read it to further educate myself on the history of Bet, quote, flame bird slash hawkfire, quote, came. It was fun, though I'm still not a fan of the Teen Titans concept, as it tends to mash together characters who don't make sense in the same universe and prioritize action over characterization. It's also funny how later, in Young Justice by Peter David, Bet tells Cassandra as Batgirl that she's been there, done that, with the Batgirl thing hinting that maybe Bat-Girl isn't completely gone after all. Smiley face emoji. I do want to point out that while Helena shows the strength of her character by telling Babs she won't stand in the way of Babs and Dick, Babs demonstrates she also has a generous spirit when she tells Helena that Huntress represents Dick's good taste in women. I loved how the focus was in a romantic triangle, but the bonds of friendship and both characters came out looking good. I'm glad I'm not alone in my thoughts on the Batgirl annual. The rapport between the two just wasn't there. And calling it World's Finest just brings to mind better uses of that title, like the first meeting of Seth Batgirl and Supergirl in Sterling Gates' World's Finest miniseries. Plus, I'm completely with Dustin. Why does Alicia need so much exposure? Especially in such a generic way. We've seen this storyline so many times before. Eleanor Carlini's art is gorgeous as always. She's a really good fit with Christian Wild Goose, but it did nothing to obscure the utter lack of personality of all the characters. And I harp on this a lot, but Alicia would be interesting. But Alicia could be interesting if DC would just remember that she's the CEO of Babs's Company. <laughs> I don't think it's DC that's forgotten. Let's get some corporate espionage plots that would be so much better than false friendiversary or spousal drama. Then Donovan Morgan Grant responds, Alicia is a trans woman, meaning she was assigned male at birth and transitioned to a woman. At the fertility clinic when she was misgendered, the doctor mistook her to currently be a man. The confusion comes from the artwork because Alicia is never drawn like a standard woman, so having someone see her and be confused doesn't register with the reader. But the idea is that if anyone, especially a doctor, initially sees her as a man, it takes away from who she is and who she wants to be seen as. Also, Bob Hastings. That's the guy Chris was referring to at the beginning. So, Don, first of all, thank you for clearing up the Alicia and that she's a trans woman. So I guess that that 
it's very specific there. That's a true. Well, you say she's not drawn like a standard woman. I mean, I never looked at her even now. I mean, after I saw this, I was like staring at the recent issue, the artwork. I mean, she just looks like she looks like a regular girl to me. I mean, standard woman in the fact that she doesn't have large tatas. I I don't know. I mean, frankly, as a reader, I, I, I think anyone could be confused. Uh, so I guess that's where this is happening. But it's not like she was ever drawn masculine. I mean, I'm looking at her face, her arms. I mean, no one, I think, has good direction on this. They're just treating her, I think, like a woman. And it's not like, oh, goodness, what was that guy's name? Uh, it was a play on a photographic technique. Daguerreotype is like... I can't remember what his real name was. But that one, like, clearly you could have, there was, like, a masculine identity there. So I almost wish that they went there. And I kind of want to go back to, you know, Gail Simone and see, like, what was her tent, intent, sorry. And, you know, going way back then, could you see anything there with the art? But you're right that the, I think the issue is is certainly the art, and I think, it's not helped by the fact that the narrative is uh, confusing as well, and there's not really been any clear-cut definition of, of what's happening here. Ian, I agree with all of your thoughts there, especially about uh, the Pickerel Annual, which was a bit of a bummer, to be sure. And it's interesting, yeah, uh, you know, if uh, Hope Larson remembers that Babs is the CEO and brings that back, that'd be great. I think we're getting a little bit back into Alicia and Frankie uh, becoming part of back into Barbara Gordon's life. We sort of left behind the schooling stuff, it seems, with Nadima and uh, Kadir. Wow. With Nadima and Kadir, but uh, I guess we can try to bring back some other characters. So, uh, Yeah. Old times, new times. What do you do? My final comment comes from email form. And it seems like a legionnaire may have contacted me from the future uh, because the subject line is episode 157, which I haven't even thought about recording yet. And it's coming from Tom Panarese, so I'm a little confused what he's listening to, but here we go. He says, Stella, here I sit wondering two things. Number one, how I missed what sounds like a really fun Batman Wildcat series in the 1990s, and two, why Shag keeps getting on your show. I figure that the former is because in 97, I was a broke college student and couldn't afford it, and the latter is because you still haven't changed the locks on your place. Look, if you need money, Don and I will go out chip in. Anyway, that did sound like a fun series. I love me some Chuck Dixon, and what few issues I have read of both Smith's Guy Gardner series were really good. Sergio Cariella is someone I became familiar with on the post-zero hour Deathstroke books, which were part of a Titans era that we are forced to admit happened. I'm going to have to see if I can track it down. I've also got to give you credit for continuing to do such a good job of reviewing the Batgirl title, which I know you aren't enjoying. As a fellow teacher, although I am sure you aren't yelling at students about bottles as much as I am, I know what it's like to have to cover something on the curriculum when you'd rather talk about something else. I mean, I'm sure that other English teachers love teaching semicolon usage, but not me. However, you aren't making this feel like my terribly boring grammar lessons. So good job. A little aside on the, the... the semicolon there one of my very good friends uh that is her favorite punctuation mark and she actually has a little tattoo of it on the um, side of her hand 
A question regarding the Batgirl movie. Are you going to follow all the news and fan reactions or just wait for trailers and the release? And do you think you'll try to get some sort of press access to something? Another great show and good choice on the How to Train Your Dragon books. My wife and son have been reading them before bed each night, and it's funny to listen in because she does voices and stuff like that. Smiley face emoticon. Keep up the great work. You're Alpha Twin Tom. Well, here's the thing, Tom. I had a Twitter. uh, What are those called? Twitter poll on who was the Alpha Twin, and people voted me. So, actually, I'm the Alpha Twin. So, regarding the background movie, yeah, I think I, I would like to follow the news because I, you know, yeah, it's going to make me nervous, but I, I think at least news will be pretty safe. Fan reactions are not safe because they sort of color your your thoughts and everything. But at least following, you know, what's going on, uh, seeing images and things like that, that doesn't... I think that'll be okay, especially since then I can, you know, I can talk about it and be prepared emotionally. And I really want to see if I can get some sort of press access to something. Uh, you know, I'm with the Batman universe. I'm hoping maybe that'll that'll help me with something. I know it's more WB than DC, though there is that DC thing and, and you know, doing this for how long that I've been doing it. Maybe I've made a name for myself. I don't know. I would love a set visit just walking around and, and talking with people, which I know that they gave access to people for Wonder Woman because I, I think I remember seeing in context of there weren't really any female outlets out there, uh, which was interesting, news outlets. And I remember seeing stuff for Alien Covenant like what we learned for our set visits. So it would be super awesome to go and do that. And I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that would be a dream come true for for sure. So I'm I'm hoping because I mean this has been my life, and Barbara Gordon is obviously my favorite character there. So that would be the pinnacle, right, to be able to go and see a movie that is based off of her or, or talk to people. <sighs> so here's hoping. Uh, well, Tom, I don't know when you'll get this, since for some reason you are in the future. But thank you for writing in. And thank you to everyone, especially Ian Prime, because he's sort of the, I think he's the number one fan there uh, who consistently writes in. So thank you for all your thoughts and please keep them coming uh, as well as, you know, recommending it to other people when we have tough conversations and, and I ask tough questions and I need to know answers or I would like to know answers. I'm always appreciative of being given answers as well as new knowledge. Ah, there you go. Okay, well, I'm going to take a break now. When I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 9 and Batgirl number 62, a.k.a. Batgirl number 10. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Machine by Mr. Wives. Entirely, I only did this to be sane, not for you to know my name. Go ahead and spit the music out. Please tell me more about your doubt. If you have heard it all before, each time makes it easier to ignore. Oh, I am tired of abiding by your rules, causing me to second guess my every single. Shouldn't do. It's not here to lose. 
get to actually review comics. Let me see if I can remember how to do this. First up is Back on the Birds of Prey number 9, Blackbird Part 2, Blackbird Fly. Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Rohe Antonio, and colorist Alan Pasalacqua. Blackbird is with Roulette asking for another student and handing over cash. It doesn't matter what abilities the meta has. Roulette has a student in mind and it's Black Er Noir Nightgale. She's currently fighting a Wookiee slash werewolf creature and takes him down. She'd like a break, but Blackbird wants to see her powers and she is put up against Osmium. He smacks her down and she screams, then screams louder in order to knock him down. Suddenly, Osmium turns into Blackbird, who offers to teach Dinah how to harness her power and learn new depths. Dinah, going by Donna, follows her and soon discovers that she is not the only student. Each day, Dinah works to enhance her powers, learns about the students, and learns next to nothing about Blackbird. After some time, Dinah can explode an apple and kind of fly using her canary cry. On night number 15, Dinah, or Donna, witnesses Blackbird stealing the powers of another student. She goes to tell another student, after she explains her backstory, and he agrees to help, but actually uses his hypnosis powers to make Dinah forget because he wants to take Blackbird out on his own. Unfortunately, his powers don't work on Blackbird because she stole powers that negate mind control. Ah, convenient. His mind is erased. Then Dinah walks in and she is hypnotized and told to destroy her non-powered friends. Oh, and it seems Blackbird knew all along that she was in fact Black Canary. Speaking of her friends, Batgirl and Huntress are trying to find Dinah since she has not contacted them for two weeks. They get a call from Oracle that Gemini turned up, but she is being interrogated by Green Arrow, who is also looking for Canary. 
Batgirl calms him down and then gets Gemini to explain what happened. Now, knowing that Blackbird will be a metahuman force to reckon with, it is all hands on deck and Huntress puts out a call to Nightwing. Next, we team up. It's weird that Roulette, <laughs> at the very beginning, man, I gotta talk about this. She puts her money inside of somebody, like in his belly, in his tum-tum. His name happens to be Knox, so how ironic, but then, like, he's a human safe. Goodness, what, what type of superpower is that? I like the line that Dinah says at the beginning, give me a break, because it could be read sarcastically, but then she says, no, really, I could use a timeout, and then she's not given one. I thought, I laughed out loud about that. The fight in the ring between Donna and Osmium gives a taste as to how dangerous Blackbird really is, because she's shape-shifting, she's hardening her body at the same time. And if you think about it, Blackbird is like a second-tier Amazo because she absor- she is absorbing powers and harnessing them all. Can a bunch of unpowered heroes fight that if we think about what's to come in the next issues? Dinah's names are a little on the nose, and she thinks she's being clever. I mean, the Noir Nightgale, like, we're just changing it up, Dinah to Donna. <laughs> Could she not have been a little more creative with that there? I like the training sequences, getting to know the students, Dinah learning things, and Blackbird actually instilling some wisdom. I think that's great. Blackbird actually reminds me a little of Professor X and Bakudo in Marvel's Iron Fist TV show. Uh, It feels a little like the red hand as we're going through that. And then Dinah kind of flying like Banshee from the X-Men. So there are two little X-Men nods. I feel like maybe the Benson sisters are doing. Who knows? Maybe Dustin's upset because I'm mentioning Marvel. Who knows? My main criticism is a poor transition from Dinah discovering the meta losing her powers to talking to Owen. At the very end of that one page after she discovered, you see her there in the hallway and she goes, ah! And then all of a sudden, next page, we're flashing back to Dinah's history on the streets. Now I get why we need this scene. Since it's showing Owen there is another way, right, to learn and someone else will find you. But it seems like she was getting caught and then she's narrating a story and you don't know to whom until the end. I think it would have been better to show Owen finding her and then have a setup to her story. I don't know why Owen thought he could take down Blackbird or why he trusted Canary so easily. You almost would have thought that maybe he took her out because he was very dedicated to Blackbird. Uh, It's only been 15 days. Would you trust someone that's planning taking down your sensei after 15 days? I don't know. I'm glad Green Arrow appears because it makes sense if Donna has been gone for two weeks without say that he would come looking because they have a strong relationship in his own book. I don't, besides those things, don't have a lot to say. I actually really liked this issue. I thought it was fun and well-paced. I think it was just really mainly that one transitional issue that I have problems with. But I am concerned how a bunch of non-powered uh, heroes are going to go up against this Amazo because Amazo gives the Justice League issues. But I'm going to give this 9.5 out of 10 birds. Well, I've been saving lots of my review time for this, I think. Uh, unless it goes quicker than I thought. Who knows? But this is Batgirl number 62, a.k.a. Batgirl number 10, Son of Penguin part 4. Writer, Hope Larson. Pencils and cover, Chris Wildgoose. Inks, John Lamb. Colors, Matt Lopez. Batgirl and Penguin actually do play ping pong as they both discuss Ethan Cobblepot. It seems that Ethan started a riot at the Iceberg Lounge and has caused quite a bit of destruction. Since Ethan hasn't received his father's approval, he has sought to destroy him instead. 
Batgirl goes to the Iceberg Lounge and finds Commissioner Gordon, and it appears that the GCPD have been there so many times that an officer is actually starting a relationship with one of the bartenders. Batgirl sees some patterns and feels like this whole thing is arson, but Gordon says there's not a link between the incidents, and then he goes on to explain some of the bad things that have happened to the arson investigators. Please wait for me to go into that later on. Batgirl is interrupted by a text from Ethan, who is still at the party, and he didn't know that Bads had stepped out. She goes through uh, some things that she should say to him uh, to basically end the relationship, but uh, before meeting him at Fathom's bar, or rather meeting an intern at the bar who ends up breaking up with her right then. Hmm. On her way home, that intern is being mugged, and Batgirl can't help but notice the irony in helping him out. She gets back home at 2.15 a.m. and says Alicia or Frankie seem to either be asleep or away. She ends up texting Dick, who was already about to text her. It seems like images of her meeting with Penguin have been captured and published, making it seem like the two are in cahoots, a la J.J. Jameson and, and any picture that Spider-Man's in with a villain. Dick just happens to be outside, hey! And the two go for a motorcycle ride while discussing Ethan and the Penguin. Through digital means, Ethan sees Babs and Dick together and is not happy that she is not depressed over their breakup. At 8 a.m., Babs is rudely woken up by both Alicia and Frankie. The three of them go to brunch to talk about their various problems, most recently Frankie's difficulties with her girlfriend that she just moved in with. And this puts things into perspective for Alicia, and she ends up deciding to go home and take things head on with Jill and the pregnancy and all that stuff. At that moment, a car crashes into the restaurant and the driver exclaims that she had it on autopilot and went out of control. Babs smells a fishy fish or a fishy Ethan. Once home, she goes into hyper-focus and is somehow able to piece together all the events leading up to the crash and comes to the conclusion that Ethan scrambled the woman, the driver, the driver's appointment, hijacked her email, and tweaked her car's navigation. Meanwhile, Ethan appears at the Iceberg Lounge and tells Penguin it's a takeover. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Madness. This is Sparta! You can call him Black Sun. S-U-N, I should clarify. Next, Burnside under Black Sun. I would like to start at the end, actually. Where did the name Black Sun come from? Now, I looked up some connection to Mexican mythology and the occult. But could it also just be some play on the fact that he is an unwanted S-O-N? Now, it's an interesting outfit. It's clearly technologically based, and it does remind me a little bit of Mysterio in the color scheme, but hopefully there's some clarification on the name and power set and things like that. I do really like the intro scene between Batgirl and Penguin, if only because on paper it sounds really absurd. I mean, they're discussing Ethan Cobblepot while playing ping pong. I'm hoping that there's some sort of team up between Batgirl and Penguin made out of necessity because I feel like that's where we're going. And if it doesn't happen, that'd be ridiculous. We're then brought to the Iceberg Lounge, and this is where the issue begins to fall apart for me. We're told that 
he started a riot, a.k.a., you know, Ethan, but Batgirl is focused on fire and arson. And the place doesn't look like fire really touched it. I mean, there's some smoke here and there, but it just looks like basically I got trampled like a riot. And then Gordon talks about the incidents. So assuming that this isn't the first time it's happened, which goes and it coordinates with what he had just said about there so, there so often that one of the officers is starting to date the other. Okay. Okay. So the incidents aren't connected. Okay. Uh, but then... He hops over and he starts to explain about bad things happening to the investigators, which seems in no way related to the actual fires. If you're interviewing people, why would you talk about the people doing the interviewing? I'm just not really sure how, you know, separate incidents for the arson, investigated by separate people, and then talking about randomly, not those investigations, but the investigators and things happening in their personal lives. How does that connect? It was very bizarre for me. Then we get the fact that Batgirl has probably been gone a while, and it's surprising that the party isn't over, but Ethan didn't even notice, and she decides to really end it this time, which is good, but he randomly decides to end it. What's the point, and why is he following her at the end? (laughs) Kind of big question marks here. The Dick and Bab scene is nice, albeit a little random, especially since he was already there, little creeper. Uh, It's also, uh, yeah, especially since you've got a pregnant girlfriend, sir. It's also difficult to talk to someone on a motorcycle, and I would know. I've been on a motorcycle with somebody. So I don't know how they're having this long conversation unless there's some sort of calm link within the helmet. I'll admit that when Alicia, maybe this is my character, but when Alicia and Frankie woke Babs up, my knee-jerk reaction was that they had hooked up, and I was super concerned. I was like, you better not, because I didn't, I mean, for Frankie, not necessarily, I didn't care, but Alicia, that would have been a terrible mistake and ruined the whole thing with Joe and everything, so, whew, luckily that I jumped to conclusions. I'm hoping after that brunch that Frankie comes home. It seems like it was way too soon to move in with that girl anyways. And then Joe and Alicia move forward. I think everything was put into perspective and hopefully they can be adults about it. Then we have the car accident. I thought that this was interesting just because, you know, it was taken over. Perhaps there was a commentary about those self-driving cars. Who knows? But I hated Babs' initial reaction to it, especially in her thought bubble thinking Ethan didn't mean to hurt her just give her a good scare now in my opinion this sounds like someone who has been beaten by a loved one and is giving an explanation for them right he didn't mean to hit me I made him upset when did Babs turn into this the hyper focus also lost it for me now I enjoyed her mental space I liked that sort of going into her Sherlock like palace right and thinking about things but suddenly we have given Babs superpowers to see events transpire about which she would have no idea you could say that she's seen what could have been except that she comes to a pretty definitive answer regarding what Ethan did to that woman when did she get these powers should she have them no I would argue I think she needs to be depowered but she should have intelligence the mind palace I think is great I'm fine with that this is a little over the top and seems very unlikely like you would have to have sort of Emma Frost like powers there's my third X-Men reference I'm glad Batgirl is now finally and thoroughly against him. Took her long enough. But at what cost to her character? Why did it take so long? It's a step down again. I was going between four and five here. I'll give it a five just because I like the ping pong battle there. And I'm glad. I liked the brunch scene. I thought that that was good. But uh, <laughs> those ladies need to, to move on for sure. It was weak. It was weak. Many moments that didn't make sense or, again, just weaken the character of Barbara Gordon need to get it together here with this five out of ten is not where we need to be for sure
Okay, well now over to Chris for his Batman 66 or Batman 77 review. Ah, uh, that's like finding a short line on free comic book day with no rain outside and getting a lot of love on Twitter. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Batman fans, and welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. I'm not sure when this episode will drop, but I think both Stella and I may be recording this a bit earlier than usual. She's very busy and has some things going on, and I've got some things in the hopper down the road myself, tentatively planned, so here we are. I got some good news and bad news since the last time I visited with you. The good news is there is more Batman 66 beyond the current Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 miniseries. Some of you may have already heard and seen the news that there is going to be a one-shot where Batman 66 meets the Legion of Superheroes, with this being done by Mike Allred. I've seen some of the advanced art, and it really looks great, and I'm looking forward to it. The bad news is that at the time of this recording, there is no new Batman 66 material announced beyond that. I think for my segment after that should come out around in August, I'll review the last volume of the IDW Batman comic strip book that had a Barbara Gordon Batgirl appearance. After that, who knows? Hopefully by then I'll get some good news, possibly cover another appropriate book, or cover some random topics. Stay tuned. Today I'll review Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77 number 4. Issue number 4 was covered dated June 2017, the pretty cool cover art with a Christopher Lee-esque Rachel Ghoul that I really liked was provided by Michael and Laurel Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. The writers are Mark Andrenko and Jeff Parker. The penciler was David Hahn. Carl Kessel was the inker, and Mad Pencil did a superb job providing the colors. When we last left our heroes, they were converging in on a rejuvenated Rachel Ghoul, who had just emerged from a Lazarus pit as Talia hands him more of his clothes. Raish orders his Shadow Warriors to attack our heroes, and the fight is on. The battle is pretty intense, as the Shadow Warriors are already dead, and seem to possess magical powers, including emitting fire. However, our heroes and Catwoman eventually start to gain the upper hand, and Batman gets closer to Raish, and a sword duel ensues. Talia, seemingly worried that Batman may lose, has a concerned look on her face, and she reaches for a pouch on her belt. Talia drops small, potent sleeping gas bombs, and our heroes and Catwoman instantly collapse unconscious. Raish is angry that Talia denied him victory, but Talia explains they can be used to be rebuilding the League of Shadows. Raish then hypnotizes a Cyclops to carry off the foursome. Our group awakens to find themselves bound, and Raish offers Batman a choice. Allegiance or death. Batman tells Raish that he already knows the answer, and Raish encounters a magical spell, Soon our group sinks into the earth to be consumed to their deaths. Suddenly, Wonder Girl appears horseback and shoots flaming arrows at Raish, and then she engages with him in a sword fight. With her father distracted, Talia rescues Batman, who then helps the others escape. Wonder Woman joins her sister in battle, and Raish and Talia try to get away. Wonder Woman uses her golden lasso on Talia. However, Raish makes it to his boat. Batman shoots a flaming arrow on it, engulfing it in flames. Raish dives overboard. Wonder Woman has swimsuited Amazons to look for the body, but it's not found. And these are the same swimsuits that Wonder Woman wore on her TV show. Wonder Girl introduces herself as Drusilla and Robin seems smitten. Batman unmasks himself to Wonder Woman, revealing that he's Bruce Wayne, who she helped when he was a boy 22 years previously. Wonder Woman invites them all to celebrate at a feast. 
Wonder Girl does a Batusi move while dancing with Robin to music, and Talia is incarcerated. Catwoman tells Batman she'll seek asylum on Paradise Island and remains behind as the dynamic duo fly back to Gotham City. The end. While last month's cover was my least favorite of the series, this month's cover was my favorite. All our heroes appear with an oversized menacing floating head of Raish above with an eerie shade of green in the background. It's very effective. I feel compelled to point out that Catwoman was not in the panel where Bruce unmasked himself in front of Wonder Woman, but I had to think she had to be in the vicinity or nearby and very curious. That said, I'll overlook it. Catwoman staying behind to seek asylum was a move that I'm not sure about, but I have to admit it does beat incarceration. Those things aside, this issue had everything I wanted in the series. A fierce battle, matching wits with dialogue, a cliffhanger, a death trap, and a very pleasant and unexpected surprise of Wonder Girl saving the day. Great artwork, especially with facial expressions. Great coloring from panel to panel. Seeing Wonder Girl do the Batusi with Robin was a classic moment. The dialogue was great, and the pacing of the action was spot on. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 4 out of 5 stars. I'm giving Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number 4, 10 out of 10 bats. The appearance of this version of Wonder Girl really helped elevate my score. So, last month I mentioned notable guest stars who appeared on the first season of Wonder Woman. Now I'll mention some who appeared in seasons 2 and 3, and I'll try to omit some I've mentioned in previous segments. Uh, let's see, I'll get this one out of the way first, which was comedian Martin Mull, who played an evil flautist in the episode entitled The Pied Piper. I've read interviews with Mull, who just wasn't happy with this episode and performance. And the whole ordeal went together, actually. Eve Plum, now she was best known for playing Jan Brady on The Brady Bunch. Uh, she also appeared in this particular episode. We had two different Academy Award winners appearing in separate episodes. You had Beatrice Strait, who played the Queen of Mother Hippolyta and Celeste Holm, who appeared in the episode entitled I Do, I Do. Roddy McDowell, uh, previously mentioned him, he appeared twice. David Hedison, best known for the 60s TV show Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, appeared in an episode. So did Ross Martin in another episode. He was best known for the Wild Wild West. Uh, Gary Berghoff, best known for his work on the MASH TV show, appeared in an episode. Ed Begley Jr. appeared in another episode. Ron Ely, who was best known as Tarzan in the 1960s TV show, he appeared in one. Horror legend John Carradine appeared in the episode called Galt's Brain. We also had uh, football players Roman Gabriel and Deacon Jones appearing in one. Uh, not to be outdone in a similar vein, Craig T. Nelson appeared. Judge Reinhold, best known for the Beverly Hills Cop movies and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He got an early break and appeared in an episode. Pre-Knots Landing, Joan Van Ark and Ted Shackelford appeared in the same episode together. Oh boy, I'm leaving some out, I'm sure. Uh, some of them may not be as well known as others. I'm going to finish up with some teen idols of the day. Rick Springfield appeared in two different episodes. One where he was wearing this white face paint because someone thought that's what rock stars did. But bless Rick's heart, he seemed game for it. Uh, Clark Brandon, Vince Van Patten, and singer Leif Garrett also appeared in separate episodes. Uh, you probably have to be of a certain age to know those names, but they were some pretty hot teen idols of the day. If you have the MeTV channel, they currently rerun episodes of Wonder Woman on Saturday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern and 7 p.m. Central Time. They're currently airing episodes for the back end of Season 1 at the time of this recording. In the last two segments of this series, I'm going to be talking about my personal favorite episodes in the next segment. And in my final segment, I'm going to answer the question that if I preferred the first season, World War II episodes, or the latter 
season, then present day episodes. You know, I got a nice email from another podcaster who listens to the show. I won't read it all here. I won't read any of it here, actually. But I don't think this person would mind if I gave her and her excellent podcast a shout out. And that is to Angela of the podcast Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace. This is a great podcaster and podcast that gives some excellent in-depth analysis of Wonder Woman stories. Not just the somewhat current stuff like the Perez era and the New 52. Yes, she does cover that. But Angela also reviews the Golden Age stories and episodes of the Wonder Woman TV show in chronological sequence. Angela has a great perspective and recognizes the story for their perspective time periods, but she doesn't shy away from pointing things out. I think this podcast would be a must-listen, especially for any Wonder Woman fans out there. So be sure to check out Angela's Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast wherever you download your podcasts. also want to give a shout-out to Donovan Morgan Grant, who got the Bob Hastings uh, question right in my previous segment. Hey, thanks, Donovan. Appreciate it. I want to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out their podcast, The World of Worlds, Trigger Talk, Xenozoic, Xenophiles. All great stuff. Listeners, I am now on Twitter at BTO and Bad Books. I'm following uh, a lot of people. Hopefully it's some of you out there that I'm following. I'm getting some new followers, a few every day. It seems really good. I'm on good pace. Uh, I'm very flattered. Thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, What I'm doing on Twitter, I'm sharing thoughts, what I hope are interesting pictures, and sharing some cool stuff and some podcasts that are out there. I hope you follow me and check it out. Don't be shy. The handle is spelled B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. B-T-O for Batgirl to Oracle and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, the other podcast that I can be found on. Yes, the Batbooks for Beginners podcast that I co-host with Jerry Green where I examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. Listeners, please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website. And please consider leaving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your kind support. If any of you wish to contact me directly, wouldn't mind hearing from you, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thank you for your support. As Catwoman remained on Paradise Island, what bet villain or villains will Wonder Woman fight in 1977? What new job will Barbara Gordon have in our next issue? What new heroic identity has Robin adopted in the future? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answer to these treacherous, topical, talkative, taut, tearful tantamounts to be turned in twofold next time. Same Batstella feed, same Batstella sight. Thanks, Chris. Well, we've come to it. The final segment is, of course, my literature recommendation. First up, I have The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, and this is what Amazon says about The Joy Luck Club. Four mothers, four daughters, four families whose histories shift with the four winds depending on who's saying the stories. In 1949, four Chinese women, recent immigrants to San Francisco, begin to eat dim sum, play mahjong, and talk. United in a shared unspeakable loss and hope, they call themselves the Joy Luck Club. Rather than sink into tragedy, they choose to gather to raise their spirits and money. 
To despair was to wish back for something already lost, or to prolong what was already unbearable. Forty years later, the stories and history continue. With wit and sensitivity, Amy Tan examines the sometimes painful, often tender, and always deep connection between mothers and daughters. As each woman reveals her secrets, trying to unravel the truth about her life, the strings become more tangled, more entwined. Mothers boast or despair over daughters, and daughters roll their eyes, even as they feel the inextricable tightening of their matriarchal ties. Tan is an astute storyteller, enticing readers to immerse themselves into these lives of complexity and mystery. Great story. Uh, I don't know if I could really say it better than Amazon here, so I'll do a cop out there. But I will say that just a different culture that I think many people are not really aware of. And I liked uh, I liked it because I feel like I've read a book about uh, Vietnam on my reading list. I've read a book about Japanese internment camps, but I think I've not really been uh, in the sort of Chinese culture. And so this was great to be again yeah immersed here and it uh, while fiction seems so true to life and i think a lot of it may have been based off at least someone told me that it was based off of some of tan's actual experiences so that was uh great but yeah there are some fun as well as some very sad moments as well I have read books five and six now of the How to Drain Your Dragon series. I've read How to Twist a Dragon's Tail and A Hero's Guide to Deadly Dragons, both by Cressida Cowell. And then finally, something that I didn't mention previously, and it actually may have been that episode that I gasped and said, I don't have a literature recommendation, because it's been a while since I read it, is Eleanor and Park, which is a uh, young adult novel by Rainbow Rowell. And here's a description again from Amazon. Bono met his wife in high school, Park says. So did Jerry Lee Lewis, Eleanor answers. I'm not kidding, he says. You should be, she says. We're 16. What about Romeo and Juliet? Shallow, confused, then dead. I love you, Park says. Wherefore art thou, Eleanor answers. I'm not kidding, he says. You should be. Set over the course of one school year in 1986, this is the story of two star-crossed misfits smart enough to know that first love almost never lasts, but brave and desperate enough to try. When Eleanor meets Park, you'll remember your own first love and just how hard it pulled you under. I think this was on sort of a top whatever list of YA literature you should read, and man, uh, <laughs> I guess when I think YA, I, I sort of go in with this preconceived notion of like it's going to be innocent and I'm not going to be scandalized but that's really true actually of things and there Eleanor goes through some tough things Park goes through some tough things but overall uh, it was great I think Tom would like this especially because of the time period and the references to pop culture as well as music Um, so check this out for sure I I think uh, yes there are some adult themes here because Eleanor's abused so uh, that's all I'll say about that but I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and then the end is, is ambiguous, uh, but it leaves hope for sure. Well, that is all I have for you. So this is recap episode number one. Please write in and let me know what you thought about how I'm doing these recaps. If you have any suggestions on another way that you'd like me to do issues where Babs isn't highlighted as much or she doesn't play as much of a role, let me know. This is, as far as I know, the best way to be between ignoring it or delving too deeply into it. Remember to send any questions or comments to Backroll the Oracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook? Follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support TBU by subscribing to the show on Patreon. 
Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?